This is the Journal of American History podcast for May 2009. Hello, this is Ed Linenthal, editor of the JH, welcoming you to our third podcast. We hope you continue to enjoy this edition to the Journal of American History. In this program, Associate Editor Stephen Andrews speaks with Professor Julia Ott about her article, The Free and Open People's Market, Political Ideology and Retail Brokerage at the New York Stock Exchange, 1913-1933. Her article appears in the June 2009 issue of the Journal of American History. This is Stephen Andrews, Associate Editor at the Journal of American History, and today I'm interviewing Julia Kathleen Ott, an assistant professor in history with Eugene Lang College in the New School for Social Research. She is also the author of the forthcoming book, When Wall Street Met Main Street, The Quest for an Investor's Democracy, from Harvard University Press. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. In your article, you tell a fascinating and, and timely story about how, in 1913, the New York Stock Exchange was facing threats of legislative reform and increased regulation, but it somehow managed to, to change the way they were perceived in such a way that it prevented outside regulation and changed the whole nature of, of stock ownership in the U.S. What drew you to this topic? Well, it's actually funny. I was drawn to this topic, uh, really to the whole topic, a broader um, interest in mass investment and the history of mass investment in a different moment, a bubble moment, rather than in the the bust that we're with right now. When the stock market burst, when the dot-com bubble burst, um, I started to kind of think more about it again. And I decided, well, you know, if I'm going to pursue this, I need to stop being an early Americanist and be a 20th century person and just go for it. So it's, it's been a fun ride ever since. I mean, we went through the ownership society with George Bush and yet another attempt to privatize Social Security, and now we're going through the great financial crisis of 08, 09. So we've kind of ridden, or I've sort of ridden the wave up and down uh, in the last about five years or so. What did the New York Stock Exchange look like in 1913? In terms of the the organization of the exchange, the administration and governance of the exchange, it's a private um, association that is unregulated by the state pretty much in any fashion. It's self-regulated by a system of uh, member governors. And the governors are kind of purportedly elected by the membership, although it's a slate of officers that, much like corporate boardrooms today, the kind of existing governors will propose a slate for election, so it's not really all that much of a democracy. The leadership tends to perpetuate itself. So the governors then form committees to deal with particular issues related to the operations of the exchange. And these will be things like if somebody wants to sell a seat and a new member wants to come in. Um, This will be things like when a a corporation wants to list its securities on the stock exchange. So it it kind of has an administrative and governing capacity in those dimensions so that when the governors decide to start doing public relations and political lobbying in 1912, it's actually quite foreign and quite alarming to a lot of the membership because it's really very, very different than anything that these governors had ever been doing before. And there are a lot of members who feel quite displeased that the governors of the New York Stock Exchange are sort of trying to tell them how to run their business, how to present themselves to the public, or what they should be doing or saying or thinking politically. So that, you know, as I talk about in the article, there's a kind of an institutional politics that's going on here as well. 
So, so what had the, the New York Stock Exchange done to attract the attention? Is it just this kind of non-kind of uh, democratic nature of it? Well, the stock exchange had always kind of suffered from popular antipathy, but also like kind of popular fascination all throughout its existence. Um, But this never particularly translated into credible regulatory threats uh, up until 1912 for a couple of reasons. First of all, the extent to which the American economy is corporatized and those corporations are in turn publicly traded, uh, you know, that is changing quite rapidly with the merger movement of the early 20th century. So in other words, the stock exchange, perhaps, you know, you have booms and you have busts in the stock exchange and they have a ripple effect in the financial system, but not to the extent that you get after the American after the American economy has corporatized and those corporations are trading their shares publicly, right? The second thing that happens is that, you know, Woodrow Wilson gets elected and for the first time the stock exchange uh, and this this Pujo commission even begins its hearings on the quote-unquote money trust on the financial system in, before Wilson even takes office. And so for the first time at the national level, um, the stock exchange feels like you know, we are in the crosshairs of progressive reform. And the, for the first time, the stock exchange says, oh, my gosh, you know, we really do need to do something because this is this is going to happen. I mean, we've had the Federal Reserve has happened now, the Federal Trade Commission. You know, we, we're seeing all of this new regulation being passed at the federal level, and we're going to be next. Um, and so that's what kind of kickstarts everything that I talk about. But again, you know, there is resistance by the membership. A lot of the membership is saying, you know, you're supposed to make sure, you know, the lights come on in the building. And, you know, that's what the governors are supposed to do. You know, the governors are not supposed to be necessarily lobbying politically or telling me how to run my business or what I should be saying to the public or speaking to the public on my behalf. So that's, that political environment is what prods the governors into action. The membership, however, you know, is, doesn't necessarily see things exactly the same way. So is it, are, the, are the members not scared of the regulations? They think it's not going to happen? Or do they think that, that the threat of the regulation is not bad enough to change the basic way they're governed? Uh, yeah, I think maybe it's the second. And I think it's maybe they just don't like being told what to do because the culture of the exchange is very freewheeling. And if you want to go out there and you want to issue phony rumors and sort of try to bait the lambs to the slaughter and you're going to make money off it, like, you know, good for you. Um, you know, aren't you, uh, don't you have a lot of chutzpah kind of a thing. And so, and people had been doing this in a small, I mean, there's not that much of a public presence in the market, but people had, you know, they did use manipulation. They did have corners and pools and, you know, or orchestrate these kind of things. I mean, I think most people are kind of familiar with, you know, the Gilded Age stories of robber barons and, um, you know, manipulating the railroad stock and all this kind of thing. Like this, this kind of thing had a long tradition. You know, it's not like these people were, uh, you know, they were masters of the universe type. I mean, sure, there's plenty of kind of hostility towards this and, and what have you, but a lot of fascination as well. But, the, you know, the idea that we should rein this in, whether it's going to be the governors of this exchange that are going to kind of make me rein it in or regulators who are going to, you know, state-based regulators that are going to make me rein this in. You know, I don't want to hear that. So I think a lot of the membership sort of had that attitude. And so what regulations were they facing? I mean, just just in, in kind of broad kind of the nature of these different regula- possible regulations would either be to outlaw or, you know, kind of criminalize um, certain kinds of practices like short selling or regulating, specifying explicitly how much credit 
you can extend to a customer or you can take on as a financial firm to engage in these trading practices. The other set of regulations, and this really comes out of the Pujo Commission hearings, is the idea to incorporate the New York Stock Exchange. It had been a private association. Let's make it, let's force it to accept a federal incorporation charter. Um, It'll be a corporation instead of just a private association. And its trading rules, its rules for membership, its rules for listing companies can all be specified in that federal charter. And then the postmaster general can censor the marketing mailings of the members to make sure they're not saying anything fraudulent. And then any disciplinary action by the governors over members would be subjected to judicial review. And we can put that all in the federal corporation charter. And then, you know, if it's a stock exchange wants to continue doing business, it's going to have to reorganize itself in this way. This set of recommendations, which comes out of the Pujo Commission, is sort of deeply troubling to the governors of the stock exchange because it kind of makes them irrelevant. It really would impinge upon their power. And and the existence of the exchange is a private association, which kind of keeps its own house in order. You asked me before, what had the exchange been doing? Well, it wasn't so much what the exchange was doing that gave reformers the idea to regulate it, uh, although there had been this panic and, you know, this history of manipulation, all this kind of thing. What had happened is the American economy had corporatized, and there's this great concern in the progressive era about the problem of monopoly, about the problem of concentration, and reformers, Louis Brandeis among them, who wanted to preserve competition in the American economy, who lamented you know, the curse of bigness, the rise of the large corporation, felt that the stock exchange was really instrumental in the financial um, arrangements that gave birth to these large corporations. And so if we can regulate the stock exchange, we can sort of um, get get this merger movement, you know, under control. Um, it can be this indirect way of getting some democratic and regulatory control over the merger movement development. So, so that's why kind of the Pujo Commission homes in on the stock exchange and what it thinks it's going to accomplish with these particular recommendations that it makes. So what does the New York Stock Exchange How does it respond? How does it avoid this kind of tide of regulation? So when the New York Stock Exchange is faced with these regulatory threats, the first thing it does is step up its political lobbying efforts. But the second thing it does is the governors determine that they're going to have to uh, take more time and exert more effort to present a positive image of the exchange to the American public. So they begin with books. They begin by talking to journalists more. They begin with speakers. After the war, they're going to do some sexier things like uh, tours, exchange tours and movies and things of that nature, more robust outreach programs. But the message that they're conveying throughout this period is is intended to sort of recast how Americans think about what securities exchanges do. So what they propose for themselves is that members of the New York Stock Exchange, through their trading, establish or create prices and securities. And these prices, in turn, signal to investors how capital should be distributed and risk economic risk should be distributed. Through making these prices and distributing this capital, the uh, members of the New York Stock Exchange are directing the nation's capital um, and democratizing the corporate landscape. 
the stock exchange then can act as a barometer of national economic conditions. After the war, the exchange sort of plays up this promise of democratization to a much greater extent. And it actually presents itself as the market, you know, the, the people's market, the place where every man can become an investor and a stakeholder in American corporate capitalism. That stock ownership is a way in which every American can regain economic autonomy and dignity in a corporatizing economy. So, you know, it sort of takes a lot of the accusations that had been made against it about the way in which the corporate economy had been squeezing, you know, the small small proprietor, um, squeezing small initiatives uh, out of the American economy and says, you know, actually, the new place in a corporate economy where every man can gain economic autonomy and individuality is not within the productive economy, but rather in the financial realm by becoming an investor. And this is a message that they really start to play up after the First World War. We will come up with a institutional marketing campaign that celebrates the small investor. We'll produce these films. We'll invite the public, various different groups to come try to, you know, do the uh, tour of the trading floor. We'll engage in a lot more interviews, send out a lot more speakers. We'll promote the whole idea of investment as this democratic practice. We'll also, in, while we're doing that, promote a conservative political ideology that we feel best serves our institution. And then when we're finished, you know, with our tour and we're finished with our movie or we're finished with our, our talk, you know, we'll give, we'll give them a list of, you know, and here are the New York Stock Exchange brokers in your area, <laughs> you know? Right, right. When they change the strategy and become more open to kind of retail brokerage and retail investors, it does... The, when they invite every man in, every man comes in, right? We do know that between um, the beginning of the century and the crash of 1929, stock ownership goes from 3 to 6%, you know, you can sort of estimate it in different ways, of American households to about a quarter. Wow. Um, and so that's a pretty marked change there. Sure, um, sure. We really can't say anything about the demographics um, beyond that, though. It's not the literal truth of these claims. It's the ideological power of these claims. Right. And that is with us again today. I mean, you know, the privatization of Social Security and the ownership of society is something that's still a concept that has a lot of currency, even in today's moment. Um, so the idea of everybody investing um, is a very has been a very powerful ideal through the 19th, through, I'm sorry, throughout the entire 20th century. Sure. And there's the idea that we have with us today. You know, I mean, that the it seems to be that in your article, I was struck so many times of, you know, they want to present the New York Stock Exchange as the barometer of the economy. And every day I can watch a ticker of the Dow on the bottom of my television 24 hours a day. Which sure, is, and every every new plan that gets floated for dealing with the current crisis, you know, the newscaster announces it, and then the next thing they'll do is say, you know, how did the markets respond? You know, they'll go to the stock market as like this gauge, this you know, real time referendum on not only what the economy is doing, but what Americans think about economic policy. You know, stock prices now become you know the only arbiter of corporate performance. So yeah, I mean, the notion that that stock price or market aggregate levels, you know, tell you something, you know, gesture something comprehensive to you about the state of one enterprise or the economy as a whole, you know, that idea has a history and it has a political history. Sure. You know, you started your piece, as you said, in our, our beginning of our conversation, you know, in a boom time. How do you think it would be different if you had thought, thinking about now looking back? Do you think what we've seen in the last couple of months, if that had happened at the gestation of the, uh, the idea, do you think it, the, the project would have been very different? 
Well, you know, if, if, if I were embarking upon my dissertation, say, for example, right now, I probably would be more interested in, okay, well, I need to understand mortgage markets and the securitization and, like, those financial institutions. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't. I'm kind of glad that in some ways that I was interested in, in a different financial instrument, stocks, and um, because – what I found, you know, when I started out with an interest in a, a social history kind of question, I'm interested in the phenomenon and the practice of stock investment and how that increased, you know, in, 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 the, in the American context. And I didn't really know when I began that this was going to be also an intellectual and a political history. It was going to be a history of a certain set of ideas um, about how financial markets work um, and a certain set of ideas about the relationship between financial markets and democracy. It's, it's a certain set of ideas that became very conservative and laissez-faire by the 1920s because of the efforts of institutions like the New York Stock Exchange. But as I said before, at all different moments in my dissertations, you look at different actors in different institutions, and they see the ideal of a mass investment society as being a reason for regulation. Um, and this is exactly what happens in the New Deal, you know. Um, but it's exactly where Louis Brandeis starts off with, you know, in the 19-teens. I mean, he kind of comes up with the idea of the small investor before the small investor is really much of a presence. And, you know, one of his reasons that he says, you know, we need to have a more, you know, robust presence, state presence in the economy is because, you know, the small investor is, is suffering, you know, even before the small investor sort of exists. And we see now a whole different set of institutions working with different sorts of financial instruments, but sharing the same set of assumptions that financial markets, if relatively or even completely left unregulated by the state will optimally optimally distribute economic resources and risk and you know financial actors expert financial actors can be trusted to do this in an optimal sort of way and that regulation is only going to interfere with the price making function and you know impede on their ability to do this in an expert fashion so i think that that set of assumptions was 100% shared by the folks who are behind our current woes um, i think it's a set of assumptions that's actually still shared by policymakers who are trying to devise solutions to our current woes. But I don't think that if, if I had started a project about the, the historical origins of our current crisis, I would have ever been able to understand how that set of assumptions actually has a much older history um, in a whole different market, you know, and a whole different set of financial securities. Given all the research you've done, um, as you look forward, do you have any any thoughts of where we might go? I know every historian doesn't want to be a you know a prognosticator, but do you, do, are there indications of how these confrontations usually end out, at least for the New York Stock Exchange? Well, I hate to say this, but I fear that my research has made me a little skeptical and pessimistic about. Um, what's going on right now in the current moment in terms of how policymakers, both under Bush and Obama, under Obama, are responding to our current crisis. And I have to say, you know, obviously, I don't have any recommendations or answers for you or for anyone, but, but I do see that the same sort of set of assumptions about markets, the efficiency and expertise of financial markets, the way in which they are the overarching structure of American capitalism that needs to be preserved in a privately held form, no matter 
matter the cost, that they these the price making function needs to be kick started. You know, we need to lend in the Geithner plan taxpayer money so that we can get these prices established again because if we have prices, then these things can be, you know, distributed, this risk can be redistributed across the economy. It seems to me that the same set of assumptions, the same set of tools, and and actually kind of the same industry-based actors in a lot of ways are using the same toolkit to try to solve these problems, Um, but that toolkit and set of assumptions kind of got us into the problem in the first place. Do you know what I'm saying? I sure do. So I think, you know, what really needs to happen is we need to rethink some assumptions about, you know, public expertise versus private expertise. Um, I think we need to think about how regulation can be reframed in a way that makes it seem consistent with individualism, innovation, entrepreneurialism, like all the kind of things that these actors who in the 20th century have these techniques that they've used to frame deregulation, um, you know, need to be brought to bear. And I think, you know, in the meantime, it's kind of, we're, 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 we're throwing a lot of the same techniques, you know, let's, let's lend money to speculators. The margin speculators are going to save us. You know, let's lend taxpayer money so that again, they can, they can buy these assets. And then if these assets have a price, you know, we'll create a market and the market will go back to redistributing risk and resources the way it's supposed to. And we'll get ourselves out of this problem. You know, I'm, not so sure. Maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't. But I do know that it was kind of that set of assumptions that got us, you know, to where to an unregulated a derivatives market in the first place. And so, you know, you just kind of have to wonder whether thinking within that frame of reference is going to ever get us out of it again. The other thing I think that historians need to do is try to, and I hope I've done a little bit of this, although my story's, you know, at the beginning of the century, and there's a whole, you know, another 70 years that we need to think about, um, you know, how did this set of assumptions really get so embedded in American economic and political life? We kind of think, mid-century, we were all Keynesians, you know, but clearly we weren't, you know, clearly, I don't think these things just sprung up again in the 1970s or 80s. I mean, they obviously do these set of assumptions about, about markets, about share ownership and the like. Uh, they have deep, a deep history and they have deep resonance with uh, American political values. Americans have a suspicion of, of a strong federal state. They have concerns about a corporate economy. They try to seek individuality, autonomy, and innovation. They value those things in their economic lives. And so I think that these, even in this current moment, for example, is a great deal of resistance to things like bank nationalization. I mean, Obama has said, like, well, that just could never happen here, you know? And I'm not saying it should, but I think as historians, we kind of have to think about, well, why? You know, how did we get to a political culture? where that's so impossible. Not that it would be the answer. If it were possible, I, I really don't know. But I think as historians, we need to, we need to examine these sort of take-it-for-granted things and under, get a better understanding of how they became taken for granted. You know? Thank you so much for uh, sending us your article and for having this conversation. Well, thank you for accepting my article, and thank you for uh, inviting me to chat. And uh, um, I, really, I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. 
Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in August for our next program. Once again, if you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at indiana.edu.